This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the National Flood Insurance Program? How does it work? What is being done to modernize and transform the program and how it operates? And how is innovation and technology helping? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my special guest, Jeff Jackson, Deputy Assistant Administrator, Federal Insurance Directorate at FEMA. Jeff, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, I'd like to start off with some context. Would you tell us more about the National Flood Insurance Program? Why is flood insurance so important and why should people pay attention to it? Well, the National Flood Insurance Program was created in 1968. Uh, it really was in a response to the fact that we were seeing more and more flooding in the nation. Uh, and one of the, one of the difficulties uh, with that increased flooding is it was difficult to secure in, insurance in the private market it, and certainly at an, at an affordable cost. The country wasn't really mapped for flooding, so we didn't have a sense of what the, the risk was. And finally, a, a profession called floodplain management was just coming into its own, and it, it really is a discipline surrounding how we manage, how we live and work in the floodplain. So all of those were the reasons why the NFIP was created. Um, it's essentially a bargain between local governments and between the federal government. Local governments agree to pass our minimum floodplain management standards. We agree to work together with that community in order to map the floodplain and figure out what it, what is high risk. And then finally, if if the communities agree to do those things, we agree to sell them flood insurance. And if you are any in any of the twenty two thousand six hundred communities in America that belong to the NFIP, which is virtually all, not literally all, but virtually all, uh, you can purchase flood insurance. Uh, we're going to sell it to you. It's going to be at a risk-based price based upon your home and where you are. And uh, But we're, we're not going to leave your state because there's too much flooding. We're not going to leave your, your area of the country because there, there's too much flooding. So, you know, I, before we move on, I was wondering if you could help us understand the process of of of, of the program in terms of – from the standpoint of someone who's required to have it. Is a requirement if you're in a plane, floodplain to have it. What do they do to get it? Well, if you, you are required to have it if you, one, live in a floodplain and, two, have a federally backed mortgage. So if you own your house outright, uh, you, you, it's a, it becomes a choice and not a requirement. Uh, but for, for the, the many of us who have a mortgage, it, it does end up being a, a requirement. And you buy it through your insurance agent. Okay. So FEMA partners with more than 45 private sector insurance companies to sell our policies Every company you go to who sells an NFIP policy, it will be the same policy, the same coverage options. We oversee the underwriting and the claims process. That will be done by the company that sells it, but we're there in an oversight role, uh, and the price will be the same. Um, So it's one of the things that we've done through what we call the Write Your Own program is to leverage the ease with which you get to your insurance agent who you buy other types of insurance and all the infrastructure they have in place to sell and service those policies. We also have 
an option to buy directly from FEMA. About 15% of our policyholders buy from what's called the NFIP Direct, which is a, an insurance company and insurance operation that we run through a contractor. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that's great context. So, you know, could you tell us more about your portfolio, how it's or how your office is organized, your program is organized, and more specifically, Jeff, what are your specific uh, duties and responsibilities? My responsibilities uh, really revolve around uh, overseeing the insurance operation. So we have a claims team, we have an underwriting team, we have policy development, we have financial management, uh, and we have a mission support side of the house, much as a private sector uh, insurance company would. So overseeing uh, the operations of the the insurance portion of the NFIP involves overseeing 45-plus insurance companies and a contractor that, that sells our policies as well as the tens of thousands of insurance adjusters who adjust claims against our policies every year. There's also a financial aspect to it as well. Uh, we have something called the National Flood Insurance Fund, which is all the premiums that we collect minus the, the portion that the companies who sell the policy and the agent keeps uh, to compensate them financially. And then the, the, the residue of that money comes in and then we put it back out in order to pay claims. So we have a National Flood Insurance Fund, uh, we have a reserve fund, which is essentially a rainy day fund that allows us to transfer money when we need it. And then unfortunately, we have a program that has a lot of debt. We are, we're $20.5 billion in debt, largely from catastrophic storms in the past that exceeded uh, the amount of premium we collected, and, and that debt unfortunately was never retired. So the management of debt, uh, I'm going to be in a month or two here refinancing some more debt with the Treasury. And as you can, as you know, interest rates are only getting more expensive so that's a piece of my portfolio as well. Oh, I, that kind of gets into my next question, probably an aspect of, of your answer maybe uh, about some of the top management challenges you face in your current role and your position at FEMA and how have you sought to address those challenges? I assume the interest is an issue. Yeah, the, the, the structure of the program and some of the challenges we face are, are inherent in the design. Uh, um, so that is one thing. Uh, we've worked uh, through the Department of Homeland Security, which is the department that we're a part of at FEMA, to advance 17 legislative proposals for how to reform the program. Uh, this is the second Congress where we formally submitted those. For those in the business of government, no, that doesn't happen often and it doesn't happen easily. That's how strongly we feel about starting a national conversation about how we can reform the program, really to make it available for our children and our children's children. We believe the program plays a vital role in how Americans live and work. In the beginning, it was just about how they live and work in the floodplain, but now it's how they live and work everywhere. We are seeing more and more storms that are outside of the high-risk area, and so it's becoming a more important program as time goes on. In terms of other challenges, we're on our 28th short-term reauthorization of the program, which is highly detrimental. Really, it's detrimental to us at FEMA, but we live within an insurance ecosystem that involves agents realtors. So every time the program is about to expire, uh, it has a potential to stop a real estate transaction because, you know, if, if that insurance is required, it has to be in place in order for you to close on that house. Another challenge is there's a fundamental tension in the program, and this is something that I would hope would be addressed through reauthorization, between the need to collect enough premium to pay claims and the desire to have flood insurance be affordable. Uh, like many things, where you stand depends on where you sit in that in that continuum. And so really resolving the fundamental tension between how much premium finance do we want this program to be, how much taxpayer finance 
is debt really the right way to do the taxpayer financing portion uh, of the program? We believe it is not. And then the final thing is just this, the size and scale of the, of the changes that, that we're having to make. I like to joke that we're, we're you know, uh, doing 50 years worth of innovation in about five to 10 years. And it's just there are a number of things that I know we'll get into from modernizing our systems to modernizing our rating methodology to really moving the customer experience to a place where, where we all expect a customer interface and interaction to be in this day and age. You know, we bring our, our experience, uh, whether it's using, di- using digital tools or, or having data provide information in order to help us fill out an application versus having to hand jam it in there, as I like to say. <laughs> so we, we're working on all of those things. And the fundamental principle that we're focused on is we know that we need to reform the program and are continuing to be a voice for that. But it's very important to do the things that we can do uh, to move this program along and to to have it be, uh, I like to say, uh, my North Star is a product that agents want to sell and customers want to buy. And so that's that's kind of how we how we look at those things. And we want to do everything we can to make that possible. That's wonderful. So my next question is around what has surprised you most uh, as you lead this program, this very important program for the country? I would say... First, that just that FEMA runs a flood insurance program. Uh, you know, we don't uh, certainly before I came to FEMA in 2016, we don't always think of FEMA as an insurance company, and many of us are not aware of that. Uh, and that's uh, that is across a wide variety of programs that work for community resilience. Uh, we often think of FEMA as a response and recovery agency, uh, and it certainly is that. But FEMA plays many roles working with state and local communities uh, in order to make those communities more resilient. And flood insurance is, is certainly an aspect of that. Yeah, so actually, you mentioned 2016. Uh, my next question is around, uh, I want you to tell us more about yourself and your career path. Sure. I, I started in government uh, in 2002. And like a lot of people who started around that time, my choice to go into government service was very much informed by 9-11. I was uh, just beginning to think about a, a career search when 9-11 happened. And then a year later, my third day of work was the one-year anniversary of 9-11. So I was there at the main treasury building right next to the White House as we kind of all went through the one-year anniversary of 9-11. And the fear and the sort of trauma that, that we all relived mm-hmm. is part of that anniversary and, and part of how, as a nation, we came to grips with that event. So that very much informed my interest in getting into to government service. I had a number of people in my family who were in federal service. That helped at least understanding the nomenclature and the process for going and applying for a job. That was extremely helpful. But the desire to do something larger than yourself was very much a part of why I wanted to join. And I've been, I, I was at the Treasury Department for a brief time when the Department of Homeland Security was formed. Uh, they essentially split a lot of offices at Treasury in half and sent half to DHS. So I ended up at DHS for a brief time and then ultimately ended up uh, back at IRS working at their in their procurement organization. Got to do any number of interesting things from doing procurement support for the Troubled Asset Relief Program at Treasury, you know, being involved in the purchase of tax systems. And then was very fortunate to have the opportunity to come into FEMA in 2016 as an executive 
Uh, I was the deputy chief of procurement, and then I've worked in both national preparedness and in the national flood insurance program. That's wonderful. So given that background and your time in government, uh, I was wondering how, Jeff, do you lead? What are the characteristics that you think, in your, given your background, uh, that make one an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with me some of your leadership principles that you follow. Yeah, the, the people I've seen be really outstanding leaders that I've tried to model myself after are good listeners and ask good questions. I think it's critically important that, that you realize and understand the sheer amount of expertise and experience that your team brings to the table. Uh, and particularly working in the program um, that I, I work in now, uh, I'm not a career insurance person. I'm not an actuary. I'm not a systems person, although I bought big systems, so I, I'm a little more comfortable. That's a little bit uh, like being at home in that regard. But it's really a matter, you know, your value as a leader is setting a vision. I think that's very important to talk a lot about w- where you see the organization moving to and what you're you're trying to achieve, but then really to put your team in a position to be successful. And certainly listening and asking questions is a piece of that. Uh, I'm a big believer in employee development and giving team members as much experience as they possibly can get. Just because my name is at the top of the organizational chart doesn't mean I need to be the one in front of the camera or out in the community. Oftentimes, uh, those can be critically important developmental opportunities for your team. And then there's an aspect of it, too, uh, perhaps because I'm a sports fan and uh, I have a teenage son who's an athlete. I I view myself as a bit of a coach as well, and um, I really enjoy looking at how people, whether it's career coaching, whether it's athletic coaching, uh, whether it's performance coaching, how people work with others to get the best out of them. And so that's those are some of the areas where I keep my focus. What are the strategic priorities for the National Flood Insurance Program? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jeff Jackson, Deputy Assistant Administrator, Federal Insurance Directorate at FEMA. You mentioned earlier, Jeff, the the reforms that you proposed to Congress, and we can talk about that later, a little later. I want to dig deeper into them. But before we get there, I was hoping you could outline for me um, your strategic vision for the program and maybe highlight some of your key priorities for the program. Absolutely. Uh, so... 
really our, our vision that we work towards every day is to enable and support all Americans to reduce their evolving flood risk and achieve peace of mind. There's a couple of key pieces in there. One is evolving flood risk. We chose that language very carefully because part of what we're trying to get across to the American public is whether you buy a flood insurance policy or don't buy a flood insurance policy, we really want to work to educate the American public about flood risk and about what their flood risk is and to avoid the mistake that we're all prone to make, which is that it hasn't happened to me before, so it won't happen to me in the future. And that, that you know, is the, is the climate changes as we see more and more intense storm activity. That's a conversation uh, that we need to continue to have. And then, then the term peace of mind is something that all insurance provides. Uh, it starts with an understanding of what your risk is and what protections you have in place today. And then achieving peace of mind, in my view, is making those kind of intelligent decisions, informed decisions uh, about what insurance products you need to buy in order to prepare yourself for the types of risks that you face. In terms of how we run the insurance operation, it's important to be very customer-focused. That's something that had begun before I arrived, but that we've continued. There have been times where, you know, it'll shock your listeners to hear that people have been dissatisfied with the performance of government when it comes to ease and usability. And so we really believe government can set the example for how to interface, and in many cases does. Uh, like a lot of things, we hear about the bad news, we hear about the missteps, but you know, having a healthy respect for the fact that it's the little things that lead to those missteps. And if you do the little things every day, if you maintain that customer focus, then you're going to be more likely to be successful. And, and we're quite proud over the last number of years in the improvements that we've made and the outcomes that we've seen in terms of our claims process. Uh, we want the claims process to be as easy as it possibly can be. That should be when you have flood insurance and you've bought the policy and a claim happens, that should be the point in the process where you breathe a deep sigh of relief and are thankful that you purchased the product that you did because you have that financial protection in place. Terrific perspective. You know, as you were shaping that vision and, and sort of articulating it, I was wondering, are there any specific internal drivers within the agency and the department as a whole as a component of that and or external trends that have shaped and informed how your, your strategic vision? Absolutely. I think, you know, we have several decades now of government performance improvement projects and thought leadership and discussion. And I think that, you know, as we come into current picture and uh, we have things like the High Impact Service Provider Program, we joined that in 2022. And it really comes from the point of view, one, that we believe we're accountable to meet a higher standard, not just a higher standard than what you would get out in the private industry, but a higher standard compared to other government programs because, you know, we're, we're high impact. Um, we deal with people working through some of the worst experiences of their lives when it comes to damage to your home and potentially financial devastation that comes with the disaster. And so we hold ourselves to a higher standard. And, and part of that is, is uh, continually thinking critically about the service we provide, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, mapping through their customer journey, continuing to think about how can we leverage technology, how can we do things better, smarter, faster, hopefully, but definitely better and smarter in order to increase that level of service. So we do get the policyholder on the end of that claim, the experience of 
breathing a deep sigh of relief and saying, okay, uh, there, there's a team of professionals that support me as a policyholder who are going to help me through this claims process and help get me back to the, the place I was before uh, the event. That's wonderful. So, you know, I'm thinking about your efforts to modernize the operation. And in particular, can you tell us more about your efforts to modernize Pivot, which I believe is this system of record for all of the flood insurance claims and policies. How has that transition um, to the new system of record shown a tangible operational impact for the program? Absolutely. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that that we, we had a lot of modernization and transformation work to do uh, as recently as five years ago. We were on a 1960s style mainframe, so think the technology uh, when when we landed on the moon. That you know, kind of the big computers in the background, rooms of computers. That was what we were dealing with, and the primary impact that had on us is a program was just the amount of time that it took to get actionable information in order to respond after a large flooding event. It was about 60 days to get a report. And so, um, you know, if, if today I was at a certain place in terms of number of claims, my report about today would be coming 60 days from now. And it led, as it often does when the right technology is not in place and technology lets us down, is it was a lot of manual process. It was people, my predecessors would be calling around to, to the insurers that had the, the most amount of policies there asking them what was going on, how much they had paid out, uh, you know, what their case reserves are. That's an insurance term, which is basically like how, how much you think the claim is likely to be worth. All of that was this manual process to go find. And we really didn't have great insight on things that we can easily do now, like mapping our properties by county, figuring out where within a county uh, do, do most of our policyholders lie, uh, and some of the things that we can do with with very simple visualization tools now that we have a modernized system. So we're quite proud of the Pivot system. It doesn't stand for anything. So uh, we've we, we've we've let Washington off the hook by not having to learn another acronym. But what we have now is uh, is a near real time cloud based solution. Uh, something that has the ability to scale when we get lots of claims. We have that have that capability to, to scale to larger usage and that so, something in steady state has the right amount of, of bandwidth that we need in order to, to do the things that we need to do in steady state operations. Uh, one of the reasons we're most proud of it is it was the first modernization effort. We have, we're undergoing a number of modernization efforts at FEMA. Uh, we went first. Uh, and the thing that we're as proud of as anything is that it was on time and on budget, uh, which is practically blasphemous uh, uh, in the in the in the tech world. But like a lot of things that we've done in the last few years, uh, we're just really enthusiastic about the fact that that big things can be done. And so it really started with our system. A number of the other things that we have completed and in, in are now working on or enabled by the system. We couldn't have modernized our rating methodology if we didn't have the, the state-of-the-art system. And it's something we're, we're continuing to, to work on. We're taking it very much in iterative fashion, not the old waterfall, here it is, ta-da, reveal. Uh, yeah, more agile. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we continue to, to run agile sprints to develop, you know, to work on usability and functionality. And so we're, we're excited about not just where our pivot is, but where it can go. So you mentioned the new rating methodology. I was hoping you could tell us more about the implementation of that new, new rating methodology 
And what are some of the recent changes associated with it? Uh, the, the new rating methodology is best understood by kind of starting with where we were before we changed. So the prior rating methodology was developed in the 1970s. And obviously, we've come a long way in our understanding uh, of risk uh, since then, particularly in the use of catastrophic models and actuarial science all have have um, moved light years uh, ahead in terms of the sophistication of those tools and of that science. The rate used to be primarily driven, were you in or were you out of the high-risk zone, and what was your elevation? And so that led to, over time, to a lot of unintended consequences. It led to the unintended consequence of if you were sitting just outside a high-risk area, you were underpaying, and the person inside the high-risk area was either paying about what was right or underpaying. And so that in-or-out way of looking at things didn't lead to an overall rate structure that was based upon your individual risk. The second thing is because the in or out was based on on the flood insurance rate maps, which are the, the map that tells you if you have to buy or if you don't have to buy. Those maps don't account for rainfall. And as, we, as we've seen over the last few years, uh, we've seen a, a, a lot of these unbelievably intense rainfall events. Uh, and so one of the things that the new methodology does, it allows us to capture all the risks that you potentially could face, whether it be rainfall, whether it be being near a river, whether it be storm surge, and it figures out what the probability of all of those are and assigns a probability to it and then builds up a rate that captures all of the things that might happen to you in the coming year that, that come out as a rate. One of the most important things that it did is the use of replacement cost value in designing a rate. Perhaps the most uh, problematic unintended consequence of the old methodology is that in many cases, lower value homes were subsidizing higher value homes uh, because when claims time comes around, it's much more inexpensive to replace a kitchen, let's say, in a smaller value home than it is in a larger value home. And so taking away that unintended consequence and really assigning rates under the theory that, you know, more expensive homes are more expensive to fix and, and less expensive homes are less expensive to fix was a critical move forward in terms of the rating methodology. And then finally, in terms of, of ease of usability, it's our insurance agents who operate with the rating engine using the portal that they use through the insurance companies that they work with. And we've taken what was a, a spreadsheet process to build up a rate mm-hmm. that was prone to human error that if, it, you know, maybe you didn't understand a word precisely correctly, you could make a mistake. And the rate generation process in the old methodology was something we know we know mistakes were made and we know that we had a problem with that. And also, that's the position that we put everyone in by having to do manual calculations and having to rely on a spreadsheet. So we have a modernized rating engine. You put in all the inputs, it pings FEMA, it gets a rate back. It says, for these set of inputs, here's what we had you putting in, and here's the rate that comes out the other side. So we had uh, quite a reputation, particularly amongst people who didn't sell a lot of flood insurance policies, as being difficult to understand. It took, it took two and three and four hours to generate a rate, particularly if you'll take one of the training classes that we provide for agents and you have that basis of foundation, you can do a quote in about 10 or 15 minutes. So uh, maybe this is kind of dovetails or kind of complements that, that big change. 
But I was wondering what you could tell us about the digital transformation journey of the program itself and what are some of the key successes associated with that and maybe even more some of the lessons learned from that effort. Yeah, we continue to be excited about the work we're doing moving forward digitally. Obviously, the system in a a centralized rating engine is a huge part of that. That's a part that touches the agent in in the insurance companies more than it touches the individual policyholder. One of the directions that we're moving in uh, is to provide what we call a direct-to-customer route here in the next couple of years where you'll be able to go online or through an app, type in your information, get a flood quote, have it sent over to the agent of your choice, and we'll help you find one if you can't find one. But if you're doing business with a certain person and you want to type your name in, their name in, that's okay. They'll get it. Um, and it makes uh, the policyholder able to understand what goes in and one, what goes out a little bit better. They don't have to have that interaction between nine and five for those of us who, you know, are busy working and with with children's activities and community activities. We can do it on a timetable that's good for us. And then it gets the work that we've done online into the hand of that trained insurance agent to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and then to go ahead and bind the policy. Uh, We're excited about it. One, from just a usability perspective, we know that folks are familiar with this technology. We use it all the time, everything from ordering groceries to you know uh, to online purchasing. And so we're all familiar with the technology. And there's a long history in other lines of insurance, uh, starting with some of the companies that use the app-based technology and the website-based technology, uh, starting in the late 1990s and moving forward from there, have had good experience with using a direct model. They found it doesn't only take away business from your traditional method of selling. It, it grows the pie because many people who didn't have time to do it, uh, didn't have time to give that insurance agent a call, never ended up getting around to doing it. And so uh, we think it's going to be a tremendous benefit going forward You know, to the extent that we can build a lot of information around that process. Even the process of getting a quote, if you, if you never buy, will be educational when it comes to flood risk. And so we're really excited about all the opportunity that project uh, can bring. And we're also trying to make more and more use of social media, whether it's engaging agents through things like LinkedIn or whether it's using social media accounts that FEMA has in order to put flood risk information and insurance information out there in the last year or two really have been pushing forward in the digital domain. And we think there there's more to come. We are in the exploration stages when it comes to how to use artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, to, how, how can we make chatbots probably in the beginning and things like that work for us. But as you all know, there, there's tremendous capability uh, in data analysis that comes with AI technology. And so that's something that down the road, you know, we certainly will explore if that's something that can be a benefit to, to our program and its customers. That's a nice transition because I was wondering, are there any other interesting technologies that you see out there, especially specifically in the insurance marketplace? And you kind of alluded to some of that, um, but that, that could be brought in and, and could support the program even more. I briefly alluded to it earlier, but the explosion forward in the amount of sophistication uh, around actuarial science and about catastrophic modeling, you know, we're continuing to learn more from from what we call them cat modelers, catastrophic for catastrophic. We continue to learn more from cat modelers every day uh, about risk and um, 
one of the good things about the way we've set up our rating methodology is we only price the next year's risk because we're an insurance product. So we're, we're selling you uh, a product for the next 365 days that captures the risk for the next 365 days. But as things change, we don't have to recreate our rating engine. All we have to do is put the new modeling in and then the output adjusts itself uh, accordingly. So that's tremendously excited. I, I'm also really excited about uh, about chatbot technology and AI and then pairing that with increasing digital tools, everything from a digital insurance card that can go in your phone's wallet, which is something we don't have now, but we're, you know, we want to catch up on all the insurance companies have them. Things that we can do to make it easier, particularly for somebody after they experience a loss and maybe for a flood, they just grabbed everything very quickly. The thing that they're likely to grab is their phone. The thing that they're probably going to struggle to grab is all of their important documentation. And so just something as simple as I don't have to hunt or Google for the the number to call to file a claim or my claim information, my policy information, those kinds of things. And then one of the things uh, that we also want to explore, explore is communications technology. You know, can we reach out to people proactively when there's flooding in their area and say, for example, you know, did you know that we reimburse uh, up to $1,000 in loss avoidance expenses for things like tarps, things like sandbags, and it doesn't count as a claim on your policy, so it'll never impact your rate. You know, we, we see the storm that's coming to your area, and we know you qualify. So if you want to go do that, here's how you, here's how you reimburse. Really moving towards the proactive touches to a customer as much as we possibly can in away from waiting for someone to call you because that sometimes uh, there can be barriers to that. How is the National Flood Insurance Program being reformed? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jeff Jackson, Deputy Assistant Administrator, Federal Insurance Directorate at FEMA. You know, Jeff, I want to transition a little bit. You mentioned earlier that in uh, 2023, you folks, the DHS, submitted 17 legislative proposals to reform the flood insurance program. I was hoping you could Explain to us sort of the four, I believe they are, overarching themes that comprise the legislative proposals. Sure. Uh, the, the first is something I, I alluded to earlier, which is uh, uh, 
making flood insurance more affordable. Uh, we know we have an affordability challenge. Congress tasked us uh, about 10 years ago with producing an affordability framework, which we did, which really studied the impact of affordability on the purchase decision. And what it showed us is in the high-risk areas, about a quarter of the folks who purchase our policies meet HUD's definition of low income. Uh, but amongst the people who don't purchase, it's more than half. So we know that folks are facing affordability challenges, and, and we certainly see in the communities that we speak and talk to, you know, the difficulty in affording flood insurance. And so what we're proposing is a means-tested affordability program that would, that would scale with income and provide assistance without putting that bill on the rest of our policyholders. Uh, so it does require uh, some money. But we believe that as storm activity intensifies, as we see more and more flooding events, we simply have to tackle the fact that for many households, it's a choice between necessities and between flood insurance. And, and we can't reasonably expect them to make any other decision than, than to take care of those necessities first. And so we're big believers in a means-tested affordability program. We want it to be done in a very responsible way where we're good stewards uh, of the taxpayers' uh, investment in us, but that also we scale it in a way that encourages people, perhaps as they uh, get more income, the subsidy will get a little bit less, but you know you won't fall off a benefit cliff either. And so really to set it up in a very thoughtful way, we've looked around at quite a lot of other assistance programs uh, and have quite a lot of good ideas. I think there are a number of good ideas on the Hill. So is, you know hopefully we move into the legislative process, we'll refine uh, into an even better uh, program. Uh, but the Tackling affordability is a critical uh, part of the legislative proposals. The second is really building climate resilience through transforming our communication of risk uh, and the tools around flood risk. Uh, we, have, we have the flood insurance rate map now. We've had that for a number of years. It is very important. It's important to how local floodplain managers manage their floodplain it's important as a regulatory product to, to establish the standard for which when you have to purchase insurance and when, you're, when you have the option to purchase insurance. So that's that sort of in or out of the, of the high-risk area. But it's not particularly useful as a barometer for just how risky you are. Uh, so if you sit just outside the flood zone, you're not at no risk. You're at a risk that probably is just marginally less than the person who's sitting inside the high-risk area. And so we are really encouraged uh, by the number of uh, private sector tools that are out there to analyze flood risk. Uh, so that technology and that capability is growing. Uh, but we also want to do some work on the FEMA side to contextualize the risk that homeowners face, because what we often hear is, is that you know no one told me I was at risk of flood uh, after an event, and the reason many people have that perspective is because they were told they don't have to buy insurance. And so, bringing that to a more nuanced conversation uh, that perhaps says, "Here's a visualization that shows you you don't have to buy, but you're just." very close to those people who have to buy. And so it would probably be really, really smart for you to consider buying mm -hmm. is an important part uh, of sort of teaching Americans and, and all of us about the flood risk that we face at the time of a real estate transaction. A real estate transaction is an important time for all of us. It's where we're learning about a property that we're going to purchase. 
And so through things like you know standardizing a minimum standard for communications disclosures uh, on buying and selling a property, that's another key communication method in, in addition to uh, some uh, what we call future of flood risk data visualization that, that we as FEMA would provide. The third thing is strengthening the local floodplain management minimum standards and addressing these repetitive loss properties. You know, anytime you pick up a newspaper and they talk about the the peril of flooding or you listen to a discussion or you listen to a hearing on the Hill, you'll hear talk about repetitive loss properties. And there are some properties where that have have had quite a lot of losses. And I think we, we have to figure out what what to do with those? The the current stance is that you know FEMA will continue to insure, uh, but is that the right policy? Severe repetitive loss properties are a driver of the amount of claims activity we pay out, uh, of course, uh, because some of these homes that that flood again and again, um, you know, become incredibly expensive for the program. And so the final thing is um, is really a sound and transparent uh, financial framework. The way the program has been set up, it doesn't collect enough premium uh, in order to pay out all the claims that we need to pay out. We have run up over $30 billion in debt. Some of that was forgiven by the Congress after uh, Hurricane Harvey. And so it uh, has come down to the number uh, of $20.5 billion. Uh, It's a debt that we can't ever repay. There's no practical way to pay off that debt. And the, the way things have gone the last number of years, we ostensibly have been making enough money to pay out the claims that we've been getting. But our time horizon, you know, over the, the next 10 years, there, there's over a 90% chance we'll need to borrow more, even with some of the, the work that we've done uh, to, to rate properties more appropriately and those kinds of things. So we have proposed having FEMA manage to, to a particular level of risk. We call it a one in 20 exceedance loss level. You don't have to memorize that. It's just a (laughs) fancy term for saying that FEMA is going to collect enough premium in order to roughly manage to all the one in 20 year events that uh, will occur within a particular year. Um, And that for those catastrophic, those Katrinas, uh, Harveys, those types of events, FEMA will get to a point where it finishes paying and Congress appropriates the the rest of the money. Incidentally, it's what we do with every other disaster program. When the disaster relief fund on the response and recovery side, for example, runs out, we realize we've used up the capital that we have and we get some more money. The thing that's most harmful about the debt, of course, part of our proposal is to wipe away the debt and say, okay, let's let's start anew, hold us accountable to a new framework, something that we can manage and be held accountable to. One of the most crippling things about the debt right now is the interest that we pay, and I mentioned that earlier. It's uh, It will be up over $600 million since we've had the debt. That's $6 billion in money that has been paid to the Treasury in debt, and that were it not for the debt, that money would be sitting in an account somewhere, being invested, bringing down that likelihood that we'll need to borrow again as we continue to see the, these large events. Uh, Hurricane Ian will end up being roughly a $5 billion event. Um, and so that would be money that would be there to pay claims. And then certainly uh, there are a number of legislative ideas about, you know, if you you know, do you want to be prescriptive to FEMA and say, okay, take the $600 million you were spending on interest and maybe buy more reinsurance, yeah. uh, which is something we do. So there's a lot of good ideas out there uh, about more 
productive ways to use the money that currently goes uh, to, to finance. And those, those, those would be some of these proposals you're referring to, Jeff. Look uh, to the future to financially stabilize and make it resilient. Is that correct? That's, a, that's absolutely it. And, and particularly in, in the financial realm, um, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of things that we can do under our current authority to deal with the financial solvency of the program. And so, the, you know, there are, there are a number of other areas where there are things where we do still have some ability, you know, things like looking at compensation uh, of the write-your-own companies and of agents things like developing uh, and implementing installment plans. Like, you know, we do have some authority there and those are things that we're continuing to work on. But in the financial realm, we're, we're nearly at the end of our ability to sort of right the financial ship. Uh, and so we will at some point need to have uh, a conversation about how to better structure the program uh, in order to, to continue to be financially viable. Are there any other, I mean, besides what you've already stated, are there any other areas around the program resiliency that you'd like to talk about in these proposals? Absolutely. One of the things that we haven't yet talked about is the importance of mitigation. And there there certainly are a number of smaller items in the legislative proposals, but mitigation is critically important because you can't just insure your way out of the the risk that we have. And one of the things that's good about the last couple of years is while on the 17 legislative proposals, we haven't moved the ball forward, so to speak. Uh, but in the mitigation space, the amount of money uh, that is out there and is available has absolutely exploded in terms of climate resilience funding. And so, you know, if you look at where we are right now, we have the Building Resilient in- Infrastructure and Communities Program, which was developed anew a few years ago, which has put $3 billion uh, in climate funding out there, about $1.8 Eight billion of that is dedicated strictly to resilience. So not just not just floods. There are some really great electrical grid grants out there. But you know, in the flood area, uh, that money is going towards all kinds of projects that reduce flood risk. And then the amount of money that we've uh, flood the flood mitigation assistance program is a grant program that has been around a number of years, um, and it has. Pretty close to 4x. There were some years where 150 or 175 million was was the number in flood mitigation assistance. It was up over 624 billion or million, excuse me, um, this past year. And just uh, you know, between those two programs, a lot of critical projects. Um, you know, things like sewer mains. Sewer mains is not something folks think about as cause of flooding, but it it, it can lead to continued repetitive flooding. And, you know, as we look at our programs and we think about think about equity, uh, we understand that many, um, you know, it tends to be poorer and uh, historically disadvantaged communities that often end up in floodplains. Uh, and so there is an equity and social justice component uh, to where people live. And then when we see communities that are in dire need of help, that's something that in the last couple of years we've really been focused on. Um, you know, we have an administrator whose who's goal one is putting equity in all of our FEMA programs uh, and make sure that um, lower income and disadvantaged communities get their fair share uh, in the FEMA grant process. So what are you doing or what efforts are being thought of or being pursued to simplify Jeff, and clarify FEMA's mapping authority. So it provides you with the flexibility to produce regulatory maps, given the situation you're in. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I do absolutely believe that 
future flood risk data in another program in the mapping industry, uh, federal flood risk management standard, are two critically important steps forward in how we build out a holistic response to flood mapping. Mm -hmm. The federal flood risk management standard essentially says that if we're putting a federal dollar someplace, here are the minimum set of standards for dealing with flood resilience that we require, which will be a tremendous step forward as we look particularly at public infrastructure. And those public infrastructure projects post-loss can devastate a community and can reduce resilience just as easily. And the example is if you have a hospital that floods and that hospital closes down, where are the citizens supposed to go in the event of flood? Do they have to go to the hospital in the next county? Dealing with some, some of those kinds of things that, that aren't home-specific. Getting back a little bit to the individual homeowner and what, what their needs are in the mapping space, you know, as, you, as we talked about earlier, the flood insurance rate maps are, are built for a very particular purpose, and, and we have gotten into the habit of trying to use them more broadly than what they were intended for, and they're misunderstood. And, and I will say, if you look at them, it, it looks like a product built for a technician. It doesn't look like a product built for me uh, as a layperson uh, when it comes, and I certainly am a layperson when it comes to the mapping space. But I think continuing to move toward better risk visualization. Um, all of us probably are familiar with things like heat maps and that we see, uh, whether it be in, in online media or on the television and things like that, and moving towards sort of those 3D heat mapped or some of the private products out there will give a zero to 10 score. I think that's useful as well. But what's interesting is that many of those Commercial products use a lot of the mapping data that FEMA provides. So it's truly going to be a partnership. Uh, But I see FEMA, one, is data providers. I think that's something that gets lost. Some people will say, why why doesn't FEMA just stop doing maps and rely on the what the private sector produces. And, and the reason is those private sector maps rely on FEMA and other federal data right. um, to, to pull out and do, uh, do uh, some of the really good visualization things that you do. But I think FEMA... Um, you know, is a trusted authority in the mapping space, does need to produce something on our own. So that's uh, what our mapping teams are focused on moving forward. And I think what, you know, if we can get it into place and we give someone the opportunity to look at a holistic and but, but nuanced view of the risk of their home at the point of purchase, that gets us out of a lot of the issues that we face because it becomes a part of the affordability conversation at the point of purchase, which is when you're really making your decision because there's the housing costs and the insurance costs and the tax costs and all those things. Once you get locked into a property, whether it's due to increased risk or whether it's due to better understanding of that risk or whatever, if you all of a sudden are being asked to buy a multi-thousand dollar product in order to just protect the investment that you already made, that can be very difficult. They don't want to be surprised either. I think, I I mean, fully knowledgeable is more important than being surprised down the road. Yeah, that's it. So, uh, you know, I think we're coming to a future where we will have better mapping visualization. We hope that through uh, some legislative reforms, we have a minimum set of criteria for what has to be disclosed at the point of real estate sale. And then, you know, we would argue at FEMA that a means-tested affordability program would be the final piece of that. So for those that truly are experiencing affordability challenges, there's some help for them. When you think of what has been accomplished with a new rating method, all the things you've done over the pivot modernization, 
How important has leveraging partnerships and collaborations been in this effort? Well, for our program, partnerships uh, are absolutely key. Uh, we work with, I believe right now it's 46 private insurance companies as part of our Write Your Own program. We have the NFIP Direct, which is a, a contractor that we work with. But that's just really part of the picture. We work with tens of thousands of insurance agents. Uh, we work with tens of thousands of claims adjusters post-loss. And so partnership is a- absolutely critical for us because at every point in that ecosystem, it's the FEMA brand that's on the line. Uh, if somebody has a bad experience with an adjuster, they're going to come looking to us at FEMA uh, for why that happened. And so it's really a public-private partnership at the end of the day. Leveraging those relationships is absolutely critical. We couldn't do it without the companies and the agents and all of the entire uh, flood community ecosystem that we have. So it's critical for us. And it's something that we're excited about continuing to evolve that relationship as technology and and other, other trends within the industry continue to materialize. Now, are there any other key accomplishments you want to highlight? And more importantly, Jeff, how do you think the program, your office, continues to transform and evolve? And what's next? Uh, Well, one of the important things that's next is direct-to-customer. We talked about that. Uh, One of the things we have not talked about is that on the unified regulatory agenda, we have updating our standard flood insurance form, critically important initiative, particularly from the perspective of the insurance agent but also for the customer. So starting with what it does for the agent, it makes our product look more like other products they sell, which is absolutely critical. It doesn't get into a lot of unique language to the flood insurance program. It looks and feels much more like a homeowner's policy was really what it's most analogous to. And so we see that as critically important uh, in terms of usability uh, of selling. You know, again, back to that customers want to buy and agents want to sell. So that making it look and feel more like other insurance products is absolutely critical. The second thing is it's going to introduce a number of endorsements which gives policyholders choice. You know, if you want your coverage to look a little bit different than what's standard, and of course we're all experienced with this in the private sector insurance world, you know, we decide if we want that rental car coverage. We decide if, you know, we want the extra money for uh, damages to passengers and, uh, you know, medical bills for passengers. We, we make all those decisions in addition to the amount of coverage that we select. And so moving into a space where customers have options, they have choice, we think it's going to increase the understanding they have of the product better. We really are seeking to move the conversation about what it is you have away from after loss, which is when a lot of people is it was like, okay, I've experienced this loss. Now let me find out what coverage I have. We want to take that back to the point of sale and where policyholders can think back and say, oh yeah, I remember I did choose this additional coverage and I decided to not do this other one. And so I understand when my claims adjuster arrives, the things that I selected because they'll have the benefit of, of having that choice at the moment of, of sale. And and the final thing is just that it's what exists in the rest of the insurance industry. And I think the more we can be alike with that, the better results we'll have. Yeah, I'm wondering, so as we close, what are sort of like three takeaways, three key takeaways you'd like to leave with our listeners as we we close the conversation? Absolutely. I think the first is that just because you're outside of the high-risk area, it doesn't mean you can't flood. Please go tell your friends and family. We, over the past few years have had many rainfall activities that were unexpected, uh, you know, whether it's Fort Lauderdale or San Diego. I mean, there, there's any any number of them. Uh, we say where it rains, it can flood. And so one important fact to share is 
over about a 25-year period, 99% of counties in America flooded. So I think getting that understanding that it can happen to you is you know, a critical step. The second thing is that your homeowner's insurance doesn't cover flooding in all but the rarest of cases. And we do encounter, and it's absolutely heartbreaking every time there's a large flood event, someone who absolutely was convinced that their homeowner's policy covered them for flood. And it takes an extra policy to do that. And then the final thing is that just because it hasn't happened before doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. You know, I, I know a lot of us will look back and say, we, you know, I've been in this house 10 years. I've never had a problem with water. When you look at the entire universe of all the flooding events that can happen to you in a year, um, 10 years is an unbelievably small time frame. It's a, it's a minuscule time frame when you look at the statistics and the math of all the things that could happen. I'll leave you with the example of the Fort Lauderdale flooding last year was one in a thousand year event. Does not mean that for the next 999 <laughs> years there will not be not be a flooding event. And uh, I believe it was Houston, Texas had three yeah. one in a hundred year events three years in a row. So that's all math and probability. Uh, and so I think the more we can get our minds around the fact that just because it ha- hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. And then start to take that knowledge into some conversations with our insurance agent about how we can best protect ourselves, what are the things that are likely and unlikely to happen to us, and how do we tailor the insurance we purchase accordingly. That's wonderful advice and great insight. I, I was wondering if you could give us more advice. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I would say just get in and try it. Clearly, there's a lot of information out there. I think now, I think it's I think it's actually easier to get into public service now because it used to be there's this thing called USA Jobs and nobody really understands. And with the internet, there's all kinds of articles and things to kind of walk you through the process. I would just say start applying. I would I would encourage anyone who is at all interested just to try it, see if you like it. I say the same thing to people who are considering a career in management and leadership. Please just try it, even if for a limited time. You will be astounded at the dedication and the talent in the government sector that you will find. Certainly, we're not perfect. No place is. Uh, but the level of dedication, and I particularly for employees who are younger in their career, the amount and scope of responsibility that you'll be given even as a junior staffer is much more so than you'll ever see in the private sector. Um, And so it's really an opportunity, even if you only come in and do it for a short time, it's an opportunity to make a massive contribution in a relatively short amount of time. And I think we need to talk more about the great work that goes on in government and so it's one of the reasons I was thrilled to join you here today is to, to be an evangelist. Wonderful conversation, important insights, great advice on a very timely and important topic. And I want to thank you for your time today. But more importantly, Jeff, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I will definitely take that back to the team. It's a team sport and uh, we need to hear more of that. So I appreciate the kind words. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Jeff Jackson. Deputy Assistant Administrator, Federal Insurance Directorate at FEMA. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, Audible, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? 
The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.